The Ahsoka hype train has left the station. We review Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Mutant Mayhem and everything else you need to know about the universes you love right here on the Direct Podcast. Truth is, I am a Jedi. I'm the vengeance. And I am Iron Man. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome in, welcome on, and welcome to another episode of the Direct Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Rimke, joined by my co-host, friend, Colts fan, Atlantean, the Direct.com senior editor, David Thompson. David, episode 45, season two, episode 45, the Michael Jordan episode. That's right, people forget. How you doing, buddy? Doing good. I actually wore 45 in high school basketball. Um, so that was my number go. two. Yeah. And I remember when finding out Michael Jordan wore it for less than a season, I think it was his comeback Half year. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm like, that's what my that's how I, my number's gonna be cool. That's who my number's after, even though I was just assigned mm-hmm. it when I was like a freshman or a sophomore or something. Sure. But uh yeah, dude, happy to be here. 45 in season two. We're trucking right along. Uh, we've been back now one week into one week episodes, you know, and that yeah. won't last too long. We got a soca <laughs> coming around the corner, but uh, happy to be here. We got a fun show today. Yeah, it's going to be a good time. Uh, not a ton of news to go through, but we are reviewing the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Mutant Mayhem. Um, that'll be really exciting. But other than that, keep an eye out for next week. Next Monday, we'll be doing an origin movie draft ahead of Blue Beetle, the excitement for Blue Beetle, not nearly as high as we would have liked it to be, at least on our end of things. So we're going to try to ramp it up and reminisce over the best origin movies in the game. Please send in your favorite origin movies ahead of time so maybe we can move them up our draft boards. After that will be Blue Beetle. And then, as David mentioned, Ahsoka starts full steam in late August. We're very excited, but not a ton else outside of that. Let's dive into everything you need to know about the universes you love. That's slander. It is not. I resent that. Slander is spoken. In print, it's libel. All right. Me and David talked about it, and we were discussing if we're going to bring this up on the podcast or not, and we decided no. But, David, I just want to make one point about these fantastic forecastings. And I've said it on this podcast before. I'm probably going to end up saying it again. These castings for the Fantastic Four, which once again took over the Internet, have been played out in such a way where it is so much more important to the majority of people on comic book movie Twitter that the people they want to be casted get casted as opposed to the right person getting casted. And I, I'm excited about some of the rumors. I, I honestly couldn't care less on a more broad sense just because everybody's name has been thrown in the ring at this point. I just wanted to emphasize my favorite thing about this podcast when I get a chance to write for the direct.com. This just so bakes in my movies are sports ideology. That is something I'm always trying to hammer home here on this podcast and anytime I'm out there writing an article. But this is exactly how NFL free agency goes, where reporters talk about where players are going. The players immediately dispute all of that, all of those reports. Now everybody's factual information is up in the air. It is insane to me how often movies are sports. And this is just another very clear example, in my opinion. Yeah, no, it's true. I mean, honestly, it kind of feels like we're all bored. The strikes are happening. Sure. And Fantastic (laughs) Four has been 
brewing for a long time in terms of the cast, right? Like it's been probably in my lifetime, the most long awaited cast that I've seen in one of these superhero films where it's like, who is there is a movie coming out called Fantastic Four. Who is in it? We don't know still. Um, Look, I think Vanessa Kirby and Joseph Quinn as Invisible Woman, Human Torch, brother sister relationship duo actually sounds like a really cool idea. If it's true, like everything is with a grain of salt and then some in terms of Fantastic Four right now. Um, I kind of buy into those two being the roles and being the people that will actually be cast. But I still think it's going to be a while until we hear anything official. But I do think in many ways, we don't know for sure yet. But I think Marvel knows much. Obviously, they do. There, There's a lot of things with, with Fantastic Four they could share with us but they're waiting to, um, and we'll see. I, I'm, look, just kind of a heat check on all of this. I'm really excited for this movie. Like, I really enjoy the Fantastic Four, and it's kind of getting overwhelmed, and everyone's now just talking about who's being cast and who's not, and the reporting of it all, and kind of the messiness that's happening. I'm just excited for this film to finally come out, you know? And my bigger, in a way, the bigger question that I have about F4 is how are they going to be introduced to the MCU? That's the question that I've heard no one really be talking about. Um, and is like the biggest one for me as just a fan of the MCU and bringing these mm-hmm. you know characters in because this is kind of a, in a way, a warm up for the mutants, you know, of, hey, we bought 20th Century Fox. We now have the rights to the X-Men, to Fantastic Four. How are you going to integrate them into the MCU? Because, of course, Disney wants to do that. And we'll see. So it's exciting, but it'll be way more exciting once there's a lot more official details released. And I want Adam Driver to be Reed Richards. That's kind of my my thing. That's my like fan casting hope. We'll see if it actually happens. He's been one of the names tossed out there. Um, But once again, I'm equally as excited to get actual story details about this film rather than just who's the cast. Absolutely. And it's just it, the, the bummer for me is that the cast, the casting almost at this point needs to come first because people aren't going to care too much about anything until we have official casting announcements, even in the whole. Uh, um, oh, who's the Stranger Things kid? You just said his name, Joseph Quinn. Just Quinn. Um, yeah. Even in the Joseph Quinn reporting that to me, I think was buried a little bit by Jack Quaid being reported and then immediately refuting it. So what of that report was true? And it's just, it's it's so something I don't want to think about until there's an actual announcement because I don't want to get my hopes up, down, or around for anything. Right. It's a bummer, but I am excited for the Fantastic Four as a whole. Me, mostly because of the director, Matt Shackman. What he did with WandaVision, I think, is just such a unique and amazing use of the MCU established characters and the marvel formula the the way he played with the marvel formula within wandavision i thought played really well can't wait to see what he does with his origin story version of that um if 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 it ends up being something along those lines but i i just i'm really excited for matt shackman to get more work in the mcu because he's been very impressive in his short run so far uh moving forward out of the mcu into the dc dcu um gal gadot you know just probably one of the most perfect looking human beings to ever exist. Right. Um, she did an interview with friend of the show, Brandon Davis before the strike, of course, 
Um, and uh, he asked about uh, Wonder Woman. Or wait, was this Brennan or Chris who did the interview? I don't. Know. I think it was Miss. Chris. I want to say Chris, another friend of the show, Chris Killian. Um, uh, talking about Wonder Woman, talking about her role as Wonder Woman and the future of the character with Gal Gadot wearing the bangles, wearing the crown, where uh, holding the lasso of truth. Remember from the Flash movie when they made the lasso of truth joke? Um, basically, Gal said, amongst other things, talk talking how she does all the time how much she loves Wonder Woman and she's so great at promoting this character as much as she is, you know, portraying it. Um, She basically said, quote, from what I've heard from James and Peter Saffron, James being James Gunn, is that we're going to develop Wonder Woman three together in James Gunn's new DCU. Now, obviously this raises all the questions in the world as far as DCEU versus DCU, which characters are being cast, which characters are being recast, what does this mean for old DCEU characters as well? Yada, yada, yada. David, obviously, after the flash, um, let us down from a reset standpoint, didn't give us as many definitive answers as maybe we were hoping for as far as the universe shift moving forward. Two official projects left in the DCEU into the dcu wonder woman gal gadot saying she's coming back do you take any big merit in that or are we still waiting for aquaman to come out and this next phase to officially begin it's an interesting way you frame that question because yes in many ways i am ready for aquaman to come out and we can completely just flip the page to what is going to be the new dc universe really beginning in 2025 with Superman Legacy, which we're all very excited for. I know I am buzzing about that movie whenever it finally goes into production and comes out. In terms of Gal Gadot's comments, it's just awkward to me. I am not sure if she's... I think she's telling the truth. It doesn't seem like she's lying, because why would she say anything different? You know, like, why would she set herself up for what could become a slight embarrassment, you know? And... James Gunn's been quiet since these comments came out, and James Gunn isn't always quiet, right? James Gunn sometimes does have an opinion, a response on Twitter or threads or whatever. But in this case, right, he's been quiet. Do I want to see Gal Gadot back as Wonder Woman? Not really. Not because I don't think she's great and everything. And I really, I really enjoyed the first Wonder Woman movie. That movie by itself is really good. And I think one of DC's best, honestly, especially the DCEU's best for sure. And look, Patty Patty Jenkins is out as Wonder Woman 3. We know that much. Why would they, to me, what I want at this point is definitely more of that hard reboot instead of a soft reboot. And I think recasting Wonder Woman, right? We know for sure, for certain, they, they do have a Wonder Woman uh prequel series right what is that one called again i forget um uh timiscara timiscara uh yeah no the amazons uh yeah i forget what the I'm, series I'm itself is called yeah look at cool up. thank you but there are they're gonna be exploring wonder woman's lineage right and you know the ethos of wonder woman so it's fascinating to me that this is happening and i could see where because of james gunn's previous comment saying that the flash only reset some things you could bring back Gal Gadot. What was yeah. the name, by the way? Um, uh, 
Oh, so sorry. Paradise Lost. It's a one-on-one prequel series on HBO Max. Or Max. No. Right. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So, anywho, Hmm. um, just Hmm. passing it back off to you here. It just, to me, look, I liked Gal Gadot for what she did. I hate how she's become the cameo queen the last year. And honestly, at this point, with Legacy looming... Just reset it, man. I don't want to hear about Blue Beetle being a character. I don't want to hear about Jason Momoa being in the next series. I don't want to hear about this and that. It hurt. It was painful. I love Henry Cavill. But just cutting the losses and just moving forward, even though that was a super awkward, painful situation, is going to end up being what's best for the the, the brand and the franchise. So to me, reset it. If Gal Gadot returns, that's a little bit upsetting. But we will see. I still trust in James Gunn, and this comment doesn't deter me from that. Absolutely, and it just feels like this is another case of James Gunn, Peter Saffron, and the DCEU legacy uh, actors and showrunners having to manage this switch because at the end of the day, we still need to promote two movies, and we still need to get two movies out into theaters. Uh, before any sort of hard switches actually happen. We thought the Flash was going to aid that. It did not. And it's it's really a bummer, kind of the state of the universes right now, um, a little bit. Obviously, the writer's strike and uh, actor's strike are putting a lull on everything. And it's really hard to get excited about too much with that impending uncertainty going around Hollywood. Um, and And that is, you know, that's something that, you know, nobody can control other than the studios, you know, paying these people. But that is something that is going to affect projects and we just have to wait for it to be over. We can't really, you know, push one way or another. But the MCU obviously is in a weird spot coming off a very ill-received project. Uh, the DCEU in this situation is in this mix between reboot, soft reboot. Nobody really knows. Everybody wants to know right now forever. Um, and then, you know, Ahsoka's coming out. We're very excited about Ahsoka. But, you know, the state of Star Wars is less anticipated than maybe it was at the beginning of the year. It's just it's a weird time to get excited about things because it feels like we're just waiting on certain stuff to come out other than the MCU where, you know, we just hope the Marvels is good. <laughs> and um, <laughs> right. it's it's an it's an interesting place to be, especially when you think about other IPs and or just movies in general, kind of rising to the top of the crop a little bit. Um, and it's just an interesting time with a lot of uncertainty and it's hard to get excited moving forward. It makes me think with this show and the direct podcast a little bit as we get through this strike action and really, you know, put a pause on actionable opinions. Maybe we, you know, have a little more fun looking back at things, you know, moving forward, just because it's it's so hard to like have a hard opinion on something coming down the line when there's so many different factors contributing to we just don't know what's going to happen. You know, we just don't know what's going to happen with the DCU. How is the strikes going to affect that? What are we going to do with these old DCEU characters that fans love but want to keep? Um, you know, where does the Suicide Squad fit into all of this? It's just there's so many elements coming together until we get an official like announcement on all castings, you know, until we get a hall H type presentation, um, you know, with official words from Saffron and gun, it's just, it's, it's tough for me to really have too much of a take on things. Um, just because I, I don't want to get just like the fantastic forecasting. I don't want to get excited about something when 
there's really just no way to know if it's going to happen or when it's going to happen. So, yeah, you know, it's that's just kind what, of my soapbox on that. Yeah. One other thing that's interesting to me is there is there are some characters that are overlapping, but they are continuing. Amanda Waller, you know, like she I mean, they, I don't know how they're going to do it necessarily with the new Waller series, but that is a DCEU character then becoming, you know, a DCU character. So this isn't completely unprecedented for this universe. But managing it and to me, just not confusing people, because honestly, if I'm DC, Warner Brothers, I want people to know this is a brand new, fresh universe, which I think Superman Legacy in many ways will will do for people. But I kind of this is a rebranding for a reason. So embrace it, right? Just just embrace it, you know, no matter what it takes, embrace it because you want people, the general public, at least to love the DCU more than they ever got behind the DCEU. So we'll see. You know, I think I think post strikes whenever that happens, you know, and hopefully they take their time and uh, the writers and the actors get what they deserve um, in terms of comp- compensation and everything else they're asking for. Right. But I think post um, strikes early 2024, you know, let's say a year after that initial January was it 30th uh January 30th announcement from DC Studios I think we'll start hearing more you know Superman Legacy will be in uh, I think production near then Aquaman 2 will be a thing of the past so it will be fun once we actually hit 2024 and beyond to see what they come out and say because like you said earlier they will no longer have to worry about the two movies <laughs> that they still have to distribute and release this year which will be I think very refreshing for all of us. Exactly. We're in the we'll see area era of comic book movies right now. And it's just a real, I'm having a hard time getting excited, about it. but um, something I am getting excited about Ahsoka, the hype train is moving on. Uh, the final trailers have been released. We are two, three weeks away from Ahsoka coming out to the big news coming out this week about Ahsoka, which, you know, could be telling of the rest of the series. As I look up a total episode count, it has been revealed, David, that the first two episodes will be dropped together in the same premiere week, um, and they will total 90 minutes, um, give or take a few minutes for credits. But at the end of the day, 90 minutes for the first two episodes dropping on week one as a release strategy for Ahsoka. What does this tell you about the show, Disney's confidence in said show, and what we can expect out of runtime and distribution moving forward? I love it. I, I really enjoy when these shows put out one, two, not one, I should say, two, three, four, maybe episodes um, at a time to premiere because it gets you locked in to me. I, even like Obi-Wan, right? You get, you get a little more meat off the bone. You see where they're heading. And I hope that episode two ends with something interesting. Hopefully that's normally their marketing strategy, right? ends with some kind of cliffhanger some sort of interest that'll keep me watching into week three it'll be interesting to see um just from a i guess a business standpoint like less of a fan excitement but more of a hmm how will ahsoka actually do in terms of audience in terms of scale in terms of right viewers for this show because andor wasn't the biggest hit but anyone you talk to about andor Oh my gosh, you know, possibly the best Star Wars show ever, better than The Mandalorian, right? It's it's more serious, it's more somber in a way, but the writing is dense and it's just awesome. You know, it's just great prestige-like TV for Star Wars universe. I wonder 
following Boba Fett, following the Mandalorian, how people are going to perceive Ahsoka. And I do feel like putting out two episodes that are fairly lengthy is a good sign, you know, and, and just based on the based on the footage, Ahsoka looks really damn good, you know, and I haven't started Rebels yet. I'm starting it this week and I'm excited to begin and get on track, you know, and by the time Ahsoka comes out and get even more excited for it. But there seems to be a lot of positivity around this series. And it is, you know, it is in the same, obviously, timeline as The Mandalorian and season three wasn't the best. But there is a lot of positive buzz around this show. And it feels like the cast had a great time with it, really invested. Wish we could hear more from them, you know, obviously, as it's coming out right now. But the hype is up there, man. I love a good two episode premiere. I think that's how most of these shows should, should roll. Yeah, and this is far from unprecedented for Disney Plus. They've had multiple series released with two episodes in the first week. Um, I don't remember every single one of them, but the one that sticks out the most to me, no surprise to anybody, is WandaVision. And I look at the um, the strategy behind that, looking back at WandaVision, the two black and white episodes released in the same week. Um, such foundational episodes as far as setting up the premise, setting up the mystery, setting up kind of what the vibe of this show is going to be, and also catching people up on maybe who these characters are, despite the mystery being all around. The cliffhanger yeah. on that, if for those who don't remember, is the Wizard of Oz moment. The the color bleeds onto the screen, and now we're off. And the show did nothing but get better and better and better and better as weeks went on. And um, I think that that's a really exciting opportunity for Ahsoka here because this is so much going to be Rebel Season 5. Obviously, Ahsoka being the title character, that's how they're going to try to pull in that Mandalorian audience because she has been such a standout in The Mandalorian and Boba Fett. But for those who haven't watched the Star Wars animated stuff, Rebels, you know, specifically, every other character in the show is going to be unknown and new to them. Hera, Sabine, um, Ezra, who is going to be the MacGuffin of the show such beloved characters for people who have seen rebels but to the general audience these are brand new characters so i really think this two episode premiere half and 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 the genius of it is they don't have to do all of this in one episode but i think over these two episodes they are going to lay the groundwork and reintroduce these characters to the general audience and let people just let people in on who Sabine is, let people in on who Hera is the backgrounds of each of those characters, the friends that we've gained and lost along the way. And, you know, just kind of where we're at with these characters in the star Wars universe that paired with kind of a season premiere starting, you know, we're going to start the plot a little bit. Who is general Thrawn moving forward? All these different things. I just feel like when you do the two episodes at once, it allows for just a little more breathing room establishing all of that as opposed to season one, episode one. All right. The only goal of this first episode is to reintroduce everybody to all these characters that have had four seasons of work so far. Being able to stretch that out over two episodes, I think is going to make it a little more clean, a little more interesting and a little more easy for people to buy in to who these people are. And because there is no acting promotion, um, for this show and we can't get Rosario Dawson um, on screen hyping this show up I think what Disney and Star Wars needs to do they need to really drive home the fact that this is a Rebel season 5 and push people to watch some Rebels and you know there's going the $20 up in the air right now they're going to release a like 
make sure to watch these episodes of Rebels before Ahsoka. Like they need yeah. to really hammer that home and just get people, even if people don't watch them, they understand that these are characters from the cartoon show that are, they are bringing to live action. And that is what these first two episodes are going to be a little bit, I think, is reintroducing them to those people, hopefully hyping them up to go back and watch Rebels, which is so good. <laughs> and I can't wait uh, to see Ahsoka. Also, this might be the most Jedi show we've gotten. Like Obi-Wan as Jedi as it was at moments, there were plenty of episodes that weren't Jedi at all. This right. feels like it's going to be a heavy Jedi, which is very exciting. A lot of lightsabers and all the other things. Ladies and gentlemen, that has been everything you need to know about the universes you love. And now we move on to Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Mutant Mayhem Heroes in a Half Show. All right, here we are. Welcome in, welcome on, welcome to Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Mutant Mayhem Review, our third animated movie review in 2023. Wow. That is insane. And we skipped the Pixar movie. It's yeah. nuts. It's nuts that we have gotten three universe-driven animated feature films that we're very excited to talk about. And before we get into the starting lineup, David, just a quick kind of temperature check on Ninja Turtles for us. This is a brand new universe that we are diving into mm. right now. This might be the first time we've talked about Ninja Turtles in any sort of extended way um, here on this podcast. So checking in with you, where is your level? What is your nostalgia base for the Ninja Turtles growing up and currently? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I'm definitely a fan. Like I grew up with the Ninja Turtles in many ways, just um, not really so much the comic books, but like animated series and just general like kid zeitgeist, I suppose. I always loved the Ninja Turtles. Leonardo is always my favorite. Um, and he was again in this movie. And generally speaking, um, the OG films, those live action ones from the 90s, uh, specifically the first two. I don't did they make three? I don't even remember. Um, I know there's two of oh, them. Oh, they made three. <laughs> they definitely I don't remember made the third one. I remember the I remember it was the first Nobody one. Nobody does. Yeah, there was the uh the ooze. They call it like that was like the the subtitle of that. I think we had those on VHS um when I was a kid. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. Um and then generally speaking, I was actually kind of a fan of the live action ones they were making, but not as much as a fan I was not as much of a fan I am as uh this one that just came out. So Anyway, um, I I am a moderate fan, I suppose. I don't I haven't read any of the comic books, but I enjoy the franchise. I think it's a lot of fun, but I'm no super fan by any means. Sure. Um, I you know, a few years older than you, I think I caught the wave a little harder in my youth. Uh in the mid to late nineties. Ninja Turtles was kind of everything. And I, I have also never really read the comics, but it was the show, it was the games, it was the arcade games at the bowling alley. It was everything and then the movies came out and took over everything or not even so much the movies came out i discovered the movies as a kid and they became like my favorite things and ninja turtles to me is just such a perfect representation um and the perfect like ideology for the things i love in fandom the most and really so many of my interests as a person not to get too deep it's fucking mutant ninja turtles but um it's <laughs> They're the things that I love the most out of the universes that we talk about on this podcast can be so well summed up in the Ninja Turtles. David, there's a red one. There's a blue one. There's an orange one. There's a purple one. 
There's a smart one. There's a tough one. There's a funny one. There's a brave one. They each have their own weapons. They each have their own strengths and weaknesses. There's rogues galleries. There's secondary rogues galleries. All of those things. I love it. And I loved it in Power Rangers when I was a kid. I love it in Pokemon. I love it in comic books. That thing, and I have a hard time defining it. I don't know what the word is, but that thing is such my favorite thing ever. It's why I was a huge fan of the Lilo and Stitch animated series when we were kids, because they were hunting down little monsters and each one had a number and an ability and all that (laughs) stuff. And it's just, it's so my favorite thing every single time. And Ninja Turtles is so emblematic of that. And so like, I'm, I have such a heavy core to the turtles for that reason. And the last thing I'll say before we get into this movie specifically, the first four minutes of Ninja Turtles Secret of the Ooze, the second live action movie they made in the 90s, the first four minutes where they just show so many shots of so many people in New York City eating pizza, and then they land in the uh, underground mall battle uh, uh, with the turtles. It is one of the most foundational memories I have as a kid is watching that opening scene and seeing all of these incredibly cool people in New York eating pizza in all of these incredibly cool ways. I, I, that to this day is the core of why I love New York city so much is because those opening minutes of that movie, it's my favorite. Yeah. I, I think about it all the time. I'm going to New York next week. The very first thing I'm doing is getting pizza and I'm confident it's because of secret of the use and it's, it's That's stupid, but I feel it so hard when I think about that movie. It's great. Let's get into it. Uh, the animated featured film, the first animated feature film, and the first uh, theatrical release Ninja Turtles since. So I never saw the Michael Bay ones. He made two, oh, really? correct? Yeah, it's. Um, but I've yeah. seen I've seen the first one in bits and pieces. Not I don't think all the way through. Yeah, the second one's Out of the Shadows. I believe is the name of that one. Megan Fox Ooh. in these movies. I like Megan Fox. Yeah. Um uh Will Arnett also in those movies, correct? <laughs> yeah, I think so. And didn't and, and hold on, and didn't didn't Stephen Amell play Casey Jones? Yeah. Yeah. He's yeah. had a rough week. He's had, he's had <laughs> he has had a rough week. Yeah. It's crazy how quickly we turn on people. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> um, here we go. The starting lineup for Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Mutant Mayhem. The Turtles, actually children, many of them making their debut. Nicholas Cantu as Leonardo, Brady Noon as Raphael, Shimon Brown Jr. as Michelangelo, and Micah Abbey as Donatello. The rest of the cast, A.O. Eddie Brieri as April O'Neil, Jackie Chan as Splinter, Seth Rogen and John Cena as Bebop and Rocksteady, respectively, Maya Rudolph as Cynthia, uh, Ice Cube as Superfly. And I don't know if you noticed this in the credits, but introducing Paul Rudd, as Pondo Gecko. Did you notice that? <laughs> I didn't. I I didn't. I couldn't believe it was Paul Rudd. I'm sitting there watching the credits and I'm like, what? Yeah. Paul Rudd was in this movie? I didn't even. It's funny. I just think it's so funny that they gave him introducing, introducing. Paul Rudd, which is <laughs> yeah. widely used for people who are making their American movie debut. Yep. <laughs> like uh, uh, Tanek Huerta got that at the end of Wakanda Forever. Yeah. <laughs> introducing exactly. Paul Rudd. I love it. Um, directed by Jeff Rowe and Kyler Spears, uh, who directed Mitchell and the Machines. I never saw it, but people love it. Um, written by Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg, the goats of what they do. And the music by Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross of The Social Network. 
a score that people absolutely love. Here we are, pregame warm-up, spoiler-free overall thoughts. David, your pregame thoughts for Mutant Mayhem. I really loved this movie. I had a wonderful time with it. I think for what it was trying to do, it did a great job. Meaning, kids movie through and through, but still 25-year-old here had a wonderful time. And not just because it is TMNT, which is just a... I love the turtles. You know, you just have a wonderful time with it. They're great characters. You jump right in. Um, It has a great origin story to it. And to me... This feels like a movie that can be playing on TV over and over and over again for any kid that is into this. I think for many kids growing up, this can be that defining Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle movie that I almost wish I had when I was that age, right? And it truly is the best movie of my lifetime from TMNT. I was born in 98, and there really hasn't been a great one and this is a really, really good one. I'm not going to say it's a great one necessarily, but it's a really good one. Um, I loved the voice cast, generally speaking. I think it was one of the most just breathing life and giving something extra to the voice cast itself and to the dialogue. I really felt it with this one. I think they did a great, great job with really getting the actors, the voice actors, I should say, to bring something to their characters and kind of let them maybe ad lib and freelance a little bit and have some fun because the boys, the turtles themselves, I think is the heart of these movies in general and the heart of this entire IP. And that's what they got down the most. And that's what's most important. So there's some things on the outside I didn't necessarily love, but at the heart and soul of the film, it's a wonderful TMNT movie. Yeah. And um, I couldn't agree more. Uh, You know, I was born the year after the third live action Ninja Turtles came out in the nineties, they made three of them in three years, <laughs> you know, just, just Don't we miss 90, that. 91, Don't we just miss that. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, so I grew up with those movies on loop in my life. You know what I mean? Like those are movies that my parents would throw on for me constantly. So I had that touchstone as a kid and that was my entry point. And it grew in video games, cartoons, action figures. Good God, the action figures, Halloween yeah. toys, Halloween costumes, everything. Right. Um, this really does, like you said, feel like that touchstone kids. And it's just such a great modern version of why we love the Ninja Turtles cartoon as much as we did. And it's it's everything you wanted it to be. It's a little bit more than that as well. It's it doesn't really reach that peak of animated movies who are perfect for kids, but also like make make adults cry obviously not every movie needs to make you cry but like the best animated movies ever tend to be the ones that are for kids and also make adults cry right it's just what pixar has done to the brand and you know this year we've gotten so many different versions of that left right and center and it's just so exciting to see this one be as good as it was as stylized as it was the artwork was incredible the music matched the artwork in such a weird way which made it awesome. Also, it was weird and gross looking and it had that, you know, rough around the edges vibe all the way throughout, which worked. And it goes back to something we talk about on this podcast a lot. Committing to a vision shows so well when you do a movie and the vision they committed to, I think, really resonated with me along with just a killer fucking script. And it was I, I enjoy I was so set up to enjoy this. Right. It was my first screening um in california 
me and Aaron drove up to San Francisco to to see it. So it was my first time in San Francisco. Um, Aaron had never done any Ninja Turtles anything, but she came along for the ride because it was San Francisco. Yeah, we met up with the kind of funny crew at the theater, so I got to sit with them and meet them all for the first time, and you know, really enjoyed it. And me and Tim Getty sat there just geeked out the entire time, and it was so much fun. And uh, they they did enough of those pop moments throughout the movie to make me walk away saying they did it. They did the things. And they moved it down the field, and I can't wait for more. That's the that's the end game of this movie. You can't wait for the next one, and it's very exciting because the next film has been greenlit, and an animated series with this cast has also been done. And you can do that when you actually cast kids yeah. to play the Ninja Turtles, do the Stranger Things thing. Why not? These kids have four or five years before they really got to start thinking where their careers are going to be defined. It's the Matt Damon thing. Don't do a comic book movie. They'll never cast you anywhere else, right? These kids can do this for a very long time and make so much money and make the Turtles so popular and really establish themselves. I, I'm. Are we going to be doing this podcast in 10 years? Who knows? But I guarantee you, one of these four kids will be a big-time movie star just based on them getting such a hot start in this movie the, the odds are one of the four of them are going to parlay this into an amazing movie star career. And I can't wait to see who it ends up being. Yeah. Um, those are the pregame thoughts. Let's get into it. Let's dive into the details a little bit with spoilers. Michael Keaton, help us out. Now you want to get nuts? Come on. Let's get nuts. All right. Here we go. Winners and losers. David, I'm adding a new wrinkle to our review segment here. Um, usually you go first. I go second. We move on, right? sports we're trying to make this a little more sportsy so let's let's flip for it heads or tails david heads or tails see who goes first here in our winners and losers segment who you got i go tails tails flipping the coin computer generated ai is taking over it is heads i'll be oh all right let's hear it here we go i i just think that's fun you know what i mean no, switch it it up. Yeah, yeah um my winner is going to be the script and when you look at who wrote this thing not a big surprise at all. Seth Rogen is Seth Rogen, one of the greatest comedy writers of our generation and one of the greatest comedians, at least in film, in our generation. And Evan Goldberg. And for those who don't know, he is Family Guy. He is Big Mouth. He is so many of the things you love um, when you think about comedy, especially in animation, throughout our lives. Um, and him and Seth Rogen are actually the ones who wrote Superbad when they were like 13, 14 years old. And it's one of my favorite stories in Hollywood is that Seth Rogen yeah. wrote, in my opinion, inarguably the funniest movie of the 21st century when they were 13. When they yeah. were 13 years old. And it I have thousand, so hard. I have thousand percent agree, by the by the way. I don't think anything's topped super bad. It's 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 perfect. It's genuinely I was in ninth grade when it came out. It was so money. But um my biggest winner is gonna be the script. They do yeah. such a cool thing here finding that perfect pitch of nostalgia for someone my age. And let's say anybody in their late twenties, early thirties, right? Because what they did was they took this thing that is so nineties in the Ninja Turtles. It is just so eighties and nineties. It is in like in my head, the Ninja Turtles is so far back. It's 50 years ago. I know it was only 25 years ago, but it feels like 50 years ago. And so nostalgic in that way back kind of way. Right. And they took that, thing and they added a script full of references jokes slang and comedic bits that feel like 
five years ago. You know what I mean? The in-game reference in here resonated in such a big way because this is such a part of my childhood and they just made an in-game reference, which was, you know, feels like yesterday, but it was five years ago. And that mix of nostalgia of like, it makes me feel like a kid, but also has those like new age to it in the script. There's something about that that hits so well for me. And I was just such a fan of how often I was laughing at the fact that the Ninja Turtles are saying this shit. The Riz joke in game attack on Titan, something that didn't hit with me in any sort of way at all. But I know how big that is and how much that crushed for so many people. The fact that they're on their phones as much as they are. It was with somebody who has a 15 year old little brother. These kids are that dude. <laughs> like, like they are my little brother in this movie and it, and they hit it in such a big way. And for it to be such a nostalgic thing, hitting that note, such an awesome, the script just stood out for me. And also a little sub winner here is animation in 2023, because I feel like we have officially seen the whole spectrum. Super Mario. Absolute. Loved the movie. We we glared about it here on this podcast. It was great. But if we were going to talk a negative, that was made for kids. It didn't appeal to the adult audience. It didn't try to in any sort of way, right? But that was very much for kids. Into the Spider-Verse or uh, across the Spider-Verse. Sure, you know, it's Spider-Man, so a kid's movie, but not kiddie at all. Sad, really, <laughs> is what that movie is. And it's very much for adults. This, I feel like, falls right smack dab in the middle where it's definitely for kids, but it plays to adults just enough and it finds that balance. Um, You know, animation in 2023, I know Barbenheimer is going to define, you know, this year when we look back on it in December and we're going to talk about Barbenheimer more than anything else. But animation, I think, is a very worthy runner up for like the story of the year in 2023 because this is the third movie that just fucking hit and we've seen it in three different levels now it's very cool look it's actually a really great point and something i wanted to bring up it's not it's not my biggest winner here but i said i went to it was a kind of a double date deal went with me one of my best friends who's just a groomsman at my wedding his girlfriend and then with my wife and we went and saw the movie um great time you know and there was our crowd by the way um pretty big uh crowd i would say like kids and some just people having fun <laughs> you know like there are some kids chuckling the whole time and um, okay speaking of the animation i i walked out of there being like if it wasn't for into the spider-verse the first one there's no way mm-hmm. they make that movie there's no way yeah. nickelodeon and paramount is like yeah do this crazy wacky comic book style but we saw what happened within the spider-verse you know that movie could have looked like, let's say, Illumination, right? Looked like Mario, looked like Despicable Me. But that's kind of its own thing. And I think this unique style keeps your almost brain working more and like your attention a little bit more when it's something new and maybe different, which TMNT isn't isn't necessarily new, but this is something different. So with that being said, my main winner kind of goes right off of yours. And it's the character dynamics. But it's mainly the turtle dynamics. I think there are four <laughs> dynamics between Leo to Raphael to Donatello to Michelangelo. I think they nailed that. I mentioned that in my opening thoughts, but they were the heart and soul of the movie. The fact that they all had it's what you said at the beginning. There's defining traits. There's the big one. And the fact that we get this flashback scene where Raphael 
looks funny. double the size of everyone else. And my buddy, so funny. my buddy, Matt, ironically, my buddy, Matt next to me goes, he, he like shouts it practically. He said so loud. He goes, why is Raphael fat? <laughs> and I'm like, I like chuckled at it. Cause I'm like, I don't know. I didn't say I didn't respond because we're in the movie. He's, theater, he's the mean but, one. <laughs> well, it's like, you know, because, yeah, he's always angry. And, you know, when, you know, these some of these like, really chubby babies, they can grow up to be these giant guys. And that's kind of like what they were getting at. And I think they did such a great job of defining so easily for someone that's brand new. Let's say someone was brand new to the, the series defining what are the character traits of these characters, right? It comes down to things like their weapons. I love Leo's dual katanas. That's my favorite thing, dude. It's just so cool. And keeping talking about so cool. Donatello's staff, you know, talking about his stick. And I thought that was so awesome. They really leaned He's using into that. my stick against me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it was just so funny. It, it really felt like they were brothers. The talking over each otherness of it, where it wasn't like this person's talking and that person, the sus, the riz of it all. Look, I taught the last two years, not teaching this year, now full time with a direct, obviously. But the last hey. two years, I was a teacher for eighth and ninth graders. So 13, 14 year olds. And I sat there being like, this is how these kids talk, like genuinely. Mm-hmm. And they were supposed to be 15 years old. And it was exactly like that. I would say even especially in a way the Donatello of it all. And I think even Michelangelo a little bit where they were really into like their uh, computers and phones and video games and like the streaming side of things, even with April of like a a tiny little bit. I'm like, this is really kind of accurate and just a wonderful shot and a wonderful scene. I think we might get two of them when they're in their bunk beds, you know, and they're just talking, Mm -hmm. right. And there's asking each other questions and stuff. I loved the brother dynamic. I think that was the best part of the movie by far. And they really leaned into it. It wasn't something that I felt like we needed to get back to very often. I thought it was wonderfully done. And it makes me that that is what makes me honestly most excited for the next one, because I know I'm just going to go in right. and have a good time because of what you said with the script and how that leads to that chemistry and the character dynamics between our main turtles. Right. And it's and, you know. I talked about it at the top, but it's just such it's such a tried and true archetype setup. And it's just so satisfying when it works, when Leo plays into Raph, who plays into Mikey, who plays into Donnie. And it's, you know, the the water type beats the fire type, who beats the grass type, who beats the water type, the rock, paper, scissors of it all. It's just it's so perfect. And it's and, you know, I'm going to jump ahead to a top play because it matches what you just said. The Avengers circle up moment near the end of this movie. Yeah. Where Leo finally gets his speech down and he finally is able to motivate everybody the way they need to be motivated. Uh, Mikey, you're great at improvisation, even better than Mark Ruffalo. Yeah. And then Raph, so good. you know, you're always angry. What are you going to do? Hulk smash. And then bringing Mikey back improv. What's the number one rule of amb- improv? And then or if then and all that stuff and then donnie you know just being a nerd you know it's just, yeah exactly i got, I got chills thinking about it that ninja turtles avengers circle up moment was just so perfect origin story pacing where the whole movie they're trying to be this super team they're trying to be this crime fighting unit and then it and where do they go as soon as they have that moment into the fucking pizza bus man and it's just it's Great. everything it was 
everything, dude. It was just peak make you feel things. And it also was great payoff. And it comes down to the dynamics, the slow build of the dynamic. They weren't like hard established right away. And it allowed us to kind of go along with them until that moment where it is defined. You know, the rad dude, the funny one, the all that stuff. It was just I agree. It was awesome. And yeah. it, the writing of this, the writing of this entire movie, along with the character dynamics within that writing, I think it's just such a standout. And that's so cool for a movie where the artistic style is as beautiful as it is. That's a one two punch. It, very, very high ceiling. Very high floor when you have something like that. Those are foundational elements that it's hard to walk away bummed out when those movies, when movies like this are bringing those two things. Yeah. And I think Leo, right, that whole him being kind of the main guy typically and being the brave one supposed to be the leader, like you you just mentioned the payoff. But the buildup was awesome, too, where it's like they were kind of lost. They didn't know what they were doing. They were trying to find their roles. Leo's trying that it opens with the Batman voice, right, which is so, so funny. So funny. And I, I just loved how, you know, in this neat, tight little origin, let's just say, like movie, they were really able to flesh those guys out and make it feel like if you go, if you bounced right back into this mutant mayhem universe, God, you 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 get it. You know their personalities. You know how it's going to be. And you can just get going, you know, because they did such a great job just laying the found the foundation and the groundwork. And I love that. I love how this was treated like we are going to make five of these movies. You know, <laughs> that's how it seemed to me while watching. It's like there is a plan here and we'll get to more on that later. But I just love that aspect of it. And it felt like we were growing with those characters and they almost did more of the origin story than I was even expecting. Right. For a 2023 Teenage Mutant ninja turtle movie so and that was honestly a pleasant surprise because of the way they handled it i i love i loved seeing their dynamics not only right personality wise but then physically you know how that yeah. works with their fighting styles and how that basically grew um to where it becomes kind of midway through the movie and then obviously nearing the end kind of just trying to outthink the situation yeah it was very well done I, I don't want to make too much of a hyperbolistic standpoint, but I'd like to look into this. This is one of the best attempts to recreate that Avengers magic, I think, um, since 2012, where it yeah. really is the team comes together in the third act in the perfect way, and it crescendos into a great... I know it's not a one-shot, but it feels like a one-shot fight. Hell, we're in New York City. like They really did a lot of that uh, paying homage to that Avengers thing, which I thought was very cool. Um, now, this movie was not perfect. Uh, those were the biggest winners that we had. But what was this movie missing? What did this movie, um, where did this movie fall short for you, David? Um, we'll switch here on the other end when we do this heads or tails thing. Uh, yeah. What is a loser you have for this movie? But again, not so much. A, does it have to be a loser? What was this missing for you? To me, I thought Superfly was a weak villain and could have been improved upon where it's definitely a monster of the year situation monster of the last 15 year situation and there's that cousin connection which leads to a lot of fun times in general i liked the gang i liked the whole mutant gang by the way just shout out really quick you know this is the direct podcast here we talk about marvel a lot um the amount of mutants that were mentioned got me excited for them in the mcu i gotta say like just even just 
I mean, you just close your eyes for a second and you listen to the newscast being about how like mutants are terrorizing the city and we got to, you know, seek them out and how mutants can never fit in. I'm like, fuck yeah, let's get this in the MCU. Um, so anyway, back to my loser. Yeah. Look, I liked, <laughs> I liked Ice Cube. Um, I thought his voice acting was funny. <laughs> I thought it was pretty like comical, but him becoming Godzilla and going, I, I, I watch Attack on Titan. And I've read some of the manga. It's a great show. And it was actually awesome to kind of get that reference to like specifically how to take down the Titans, like the giants with um, their their nape. Yeah, like that's such a fundamental thing. And as a fan, I was like, this is so cool. You know, like they're actually that was a true reference to it. So that was all right. But Superfly in general becoming super, super fly at the end. Uh, I'm like, all right, this is pretty generic. That's how it at least came off to me. Yeah. Like he was he was. The worst thing he did and how it could have been improved was he was just a really generic villain. That that was the probably the main thing to me that made this feel like, oh, this is a Nickelodeon movie, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so generally speaking, look, there's there's live action villains that are like given these giant budgets and are even worse than Superfly. But to me, it wasn't a bright point. Like it wasn't the villain wasn't anywhere near as interesting as our main characters. That wasn't their point. He was kind of just there to do his one note job and it was fine, but it didn't really draw me into that final act. Whereas them, the boys did, you know, that that Avengers moment. But I'm kind of like, okay, this is what we're doing and kind of wish it had been a little bit improved, but that's okay. I, I Like I said, at the, the top of the review, this is a kid's movie through and through. They did what they were going to do. They have a future, it seems like. So it's de- it's definitely a pass. It doesn't make me dislike the movie, I would say. But as you put it, it could have been improved upon, I would say, for sure. sure. Yeah, and um, I think that it's it's like uh, you have an NFL defense or whatever. Say this is your say the villain is your secondary, not a liability, but it's not going to win you any games. And that's right. kind of how I see Superfly here. Uh, it's very funny. Uh, uh, me and Aaron watching this movie, I. I was semi-confident it was Ice Cube um, as Superfly, <laughs> yeah. but as he was talking, I'm not going to lie, me and Aaron were having like, because Aaron was like, who is that? And I'm like, pretty sure it's Ice Cube. And then Aaron goes, are you sure it's not Ice T? And I'm like, is it Ice T? Because they do have <laughs> similar-ish voices. I'm yeah. like, it might be. I know it's an ice. Is it Cube or T? And then he rips the door off the van and he walks in. Six in the morning, police at my door. And we both just looked at each other and we're like, okay, it's Ice Cube. It's definitely Ice Cube. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah. what a you let Ice Cube rap in this movie. Like, what an amazing thing. So exciting. Yeah. Um, but no, I I share your sentiments, but you know, like you were saying, that's not really the point of the movie. Um, my, I guess, biggest loser, and this is, I think, a little more of a trend I've been noticing in movies these past few weeks. Um, I noticed it a little bit in Mission Impossible. I noticed it a lot in Barbie. I noticed it a lot here. The transition from the second to third act, mm. I think I have been like noticing that a little more lately in movies. And I, I'm just hoping that it's a more in- enticing switch from the second to third act when we get into our resolution stage it when it just kind of blends and it just kind of happens in this movie we went from milking to now we're on the streets of new york you know what i mean and they had that dope moment where april just shreds the scooter off the side of the bridge 
tosses up the little watch thing and Leo catches it without even looking. So fucking cool. But it just kind of happened and there wasn't any sort of like energy behind it. And Barbie, when they go back from the real world into Barbie land, it just kind of happens. And now we're here. Um, Mission Impossible, I forget the exact moment. But I think what's making it stand out for me a lot is that switch in Oppenheimer is so pronounced. And it's such a moment when the movie switches into that third act and it switches into the energy that comes behind it. So, I mean, this is it's nitpicky without a doubt, but everybody's saying it laws a little bit. I think that law comes when it switches from the, okay, what are we going to do? Now we're right in the middle of the fight. And it's just that that balance, I think, could be a little more energetic uh, connecting those two pieces of the story. I agree. It's funny you mentioned the Barbie part of that, because I think that was my loser, if I remember correctly, on this podcast. And I remember watching Barbie thinking the second act wasn't the best. And there was a transition almost issue, I would say, where it's like, why does it feel like we're kind of just getting back there? You know, we're just jumping there and we're just going along with the ride. Sure. But it should be a little bit more intriguing. So that's a great call. I have a question for you. We haven't talked about her yet. How do you feel about April uh, in this movie? Because someone a main character we haven't really discussed i was just curious like your thoughts um definitely you know uh, i would say like a different direction they went with her but i'm curious what you think before i'll share my thoughts um i had a big crush on april o'neill when i was younger no shit um she had giant (laughs) hair and she had giant hair in the movies and uh, i married a person with giant hair i think it might be kind of a thing (laughs) Um, I love that. I really loved this April. I love the flirtation. I kind of wish it was Rafford, uh, Mikey, but you know, it being Leo, I'm totally fine with, um, she was hilarious. Um, she was just as much a kid as everybody else, more sarcastic than everybody, smarter than everybody confident. Um, I, I just thought it was a really cool angle that they took on it. And she aided the turtles as opposed to just kind of being there to support them. Which yes. is cool. And my favorite joke, my favorite joke of the whole movie is an April O'Neil moment is when they're trying to explain everything. And then Mikey goes, do you want to get some pizza and talk about this? And her response, well, how do you guys feel about pepperoni? And then they all freak out. And all you hear is Mikey's voice at the very end goes, I never thought I would get this far. <laughs> and they're just nervous <laughs> to talk to a girl. And I just yeah. think it's so funny. Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, no, I liked her a lot. And I think she was a great additive to the team and not even just a romantic uh, element to the characters which while still being a romantic element to the character so, right it was very fun to see i liked her as kind of like the do- the guy in the chair kind of a role in this one mm-hmm. a little bit and her having her little side story of like wanting to make it and the whole puking bit i think she was so funny well done you know i was actually surprised going in that she she wasn't a forgettable character in it you know like she wasn't just someone that kind of pops up for the sake of popping up she is the their connection to the real world and that i think was a really great tool in this movie of their you know splinter obviously scaring them from the real world for for legitimate reasons and their you know overwhelming desire 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 which they did great job like visually i love that one shot of them looking out of the sewer and just seeing all the lights up there like flashing is the interest and i mean just their opening i would say with like getting the groceries but what does that mean for the ninja turtles you gotta go steal it and do this whole ninja thing whole it's, story. It's, just, it's so great and once april's introduced then that's where the melding happens and the idea that <laughs> it's just kind of now it's it's a positive i will say but 
I loved you got chills earlier talking like the Avengers moment and everything. I just loved how kind of cheesy it was, but how feel good it was that we get the sketch art, right, of how it could be when they, you know, save the day and defeat Superfly, right? And it's mm-hmm. it's by the way, it seems like a callback to the those um animated shows. Yeah. Or the animated show, I believe it, mm-hmm. it like looked the same and Absolutely. was so cool. Loved that. Um, I the that was, rounded like, heads and everything. It was yeah, money. and like in like super money. flat, you know, because this was like a bit of a three D so deal. This new one and how it actually happens, right? Like the signing the baby thing, because you know, there's mm-hmm. there's part of you when you go in. There's been so many movies like this in a sense where it's a superhero movie for all intents and purposes, and there's so many like this where you know the the main protagonist has this goal, has this dream, has this vision. And the lesson is that, you know, maybe that was that shouldn't have been their dream. Uh, like even in this movie, we get the April was in it for the wrong reasons, quote unquote, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But I just loved at the end of the day, they did get that right. They did get their happy mm-hmm. ending. They they were accepted. They got to go to high school. And obviously the whole April O'Neil thing kind of wound nicely into that. I just appreciated for this, for what this is as a film how nicely it ended right just put a nice little bow on it go away you know watch the post credit scene get excited for the next one it's in many ways just one of the it's it might be honestly the best feel-good movie of the year and maybe i'm saying that because the most recent movie i saw was oppenheimer in theaters (laughs) before this but in terms of feel good it'd be probably this and mario for me so far this year i mean they had a Guardians? raccoon howling at the top of his lungs to Florence and the machine. The dog okay. days are over. Okay. And Guardians. <laughs> guard, okay. Guardians, I will say, <laughs> is a feel-good movie by the end. But the journey, yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm yeah. not having fun all the time. <laughs> I'm not having a blast. I'm crying. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm being emotionally moved by James Gunn left and right. Um, so yes, like Guardians is probably the most <laughs> probably the most emotionally moving movie I've seen, yeah. possibly. Um, and like the most well done in that sense, but feel good all the time. Eh. <laughs> oh, man, that last moment is the most feel good moment. Oh, I love it. But it's yes, true. I agree with you. This this had everything it uh had going for it. And I, like I said, and it also still gave room for April to be a love interest. I know and and nobody is going to sing the praises of a badass main character woman than me. Like David, how many of my how many of my favorite characters are just badass chicks who end up being evil batshit crazy people? Like like <laughs> Danny and Wanda are my archetype, right? And I think that I think that it's so cool that we're still able to have this romantic story with April while still making her a badass woman on her own. So I finding that balance is, I think, a very cool thing. Yeah. Moving right into our top plays. You mentioned the uh, 80s animated callback, which is really cool. I also like during the Batman speech, they have that Miss Marvel fantasy, like how it's going to play out Leo's head. Yeah. You know, how it's going to go down. And they did the all white eyes of it all. I'm like, God, it just cannot get cooler than that, man. It's just yeah. there's something so pronounced about the eye mask. And I love that Raph gets a full uh bandana as well yes. uh the eye mask with the white eyes there's something just so inherently awesome about that um moving on from that shout out to the ferris bueller moment being Amazing. legit a scene from ferris bueller it yeah. made my heart race it was so cool 
to see. I'm going to go see the Cubs play in City Field next week, and I cannot wait to do it. Ferris Bueller just reminded me of Chicago. It yeah. was so cool to see. Nice. That was great. Um, I love that. It was so cool. Um, we got our turtle montage where we could just get to see them kick an ass for a little while. Um, so I guess within that montage, within the turtles, who was your favorite fighter of these guys? Because um, as, as I know you said Leo's your favorite and he had the two katanas, but I feel like yeah. everybody got some really great action moments throughout. I honestly was most drawn to when watching it for whatever reason, Donatello. Um, yeah, I think because too. I feel like because he was talking about it more in a way, like mm-hmm. he was so like actively, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like the stick of it all. And I almost felt like because he's, he's Donatello, he's like the smart one. You're almost kind of like rooting for him in a way like you kind of are expecting maybe nothing out of him so when he's out there like kicking ass it's like oh yeah donatello get him you know i can rely on the other three almost a bit more um but i liked you know uh, i'm you, you said donatello as well i liked how in that scene they just because we get the whole this is where they did the whole the origin story well we get the quick kind of oh <laughs> splinter's like well, what did I do? I had to figure out how to be a ninja, of course, you know, to defend myself mm-hmm. and te- teach it to my kids. And Naturally. we don't need to take a ton of time out of the movie to explain that or show that. But then once they're kicking ass, like, oh, yeah, they are trained. You know, they they're are, ninja. They are yeah. awesome. <laughs> and they are mutant <laughs> turtles that have these like abilities, you know, and kind of like right. jump around like crazy and are super quick. I love that. This was my favorite part of the movie, I would say. like, I, This is the one I would say scene. I would want to rewatch the most. It's like 90 seconds, but it's great. And it does that parallax thing where like it cuts through a room, but when you go through the wall, that's a transition into yes, the other room. I, I love, love that. that. Very 90s. I love that. Very love 90s, that. which fits. Um, this True. was your favorite action scene. Um, my favorite action scene, without a doubt, hands down, no doubt, even a little bit in my mind, is the Jackie Chan fight scene that they give Splinter. It is. I don't know how much you grew up on Jackie Chan movies, um, but like Rush Hour was big for me uh, when I was a kid. The other Jackie Chan movies I would see like in spurts. My dad would never let me watch a whole one, but like the cop trilogy I've seen, which is all great. But when they have Splinter do the fight scene in the room while the kids are all hung up, it's right before he gets to use every single one of their weapons, which is, again, iconic in a completely different kind of way. But to see Splinter fight a group of people the exact same way Jackie Chan fights people in his movies, using the chair on the ground and kicking it up at somebody else's face, tripping, falling down, grabbing the rug, pulling it out, being able to climb up the wall, do the dodge, thing like that. Like all the Jackie Chanisms in that fight scene was just such an amazing respect for who that is. And and just action movies in general. And it's going to be so cool when this comes out on uh, streaming, when yeah. somebody cuts together that scene with all of the homages to the old Jackie Chan things like like anytime Jackie Chan like launches something that's on the ground with his foot up into the face of somebody else. It's just always the coolest thing in the world. And they did such a good job portraying that, which was sick. Um, yeah. And then the last thing that you're going to love. Me and Tim were talking about it after the show, after the movie. The amount of Spider-Man movie references in the New York fight scene yes. is insane. For those who don't know, in the Raimi trilogy and the Tasm duology, I guess, there are so many moments where New York helps Spider-Man. Oh, my God. The, the crane. Way. 
the crane. The, oh, dude, the fucking crane. I was losing it. I was because before the crane, we get we get the guy trying to help him up with his hand. They legit, I think they legit say you mess with one of us, you mess with all of us. New York. When they're yeah. throwing trash at him from yes, out the window, the yes. same way they do on the Brooklyn Bridge with the goblin. Yeah. And then and then the fucking crane. The crane. You still know that guy over on fifth? Give him a call. I need him. And to like, me, the uh the, sorry. Good. I was gonna say that the toad using his tongue, like yes. swinging. <laughs> yes. I'm like, oh my god, so... it's Spider-Man. There's no way that wasn't a giant Spider-Man Sony reference. There's no way it wasn't, man. It was so pitch perfect. And I when they first did it, I leaned over to Tim. I go, You mess with one of us, you mess with all of us. He's like, I know Spider-Man. And then it kept going. They did the trash. They did the toad swing. And then the crane comes the in. Crane. I'm like, there's no way this isn't that, man. Yeah. It was so good. It was yeah. so good. And then they they beat the bad guy. We move on to high school. It's very fun. Good times overall. And then we get into the overtime. Also, Can I Kick It being the credit song. Mwah. Perfect. Perfect credit song. Um, yeah. also, overtime. Quick top play to just the pizza involved in this movie. Very, very good pizza, was pizza good. representation throughout. And I appreciate that. Yeah, pizza representation is big with the turtles. They love pizza. Um, yeah. Heading into overtime, I thought this was very well played. My Rudolph's character is still pissed. I thought it was going to be a lot harder to find these kids than it is. They are just at school. <laughs> they yeah. are just out there <laughs> doing their thing, <laughs> which is so stupid. Yeah. But um, then they sense. say, well, we got to go get them. How are we going to go get them? We bring in, of course, the big bad himself, Shredder. Um, did oh. you notice where I think they maybe planted the shredder seed earlier in the movie? No, I didn't. So Superfly is telling his story, which is so the fact that Ice Cube gets a chance to be adorable in this movie is very funny to me. Because <laughs> how often has he ever gotten a chance to be adorable in his life? But he is. Um, when he's talking about the guy who came after him and his dad. And Superfly yeah. turned around and beat him to within an inch of his life. Yes. That's Shredder. That is Shredder. Oh. It's, the, it's the bagel guy all over again. That is going to be Shredder. <laughs> he has a reason to hate mutants. Not necessarily the turtles, but mutants. And moving forward, I just think that's a very cool thing that I think that they're going to do. And that is your movie. Let's talk about the art style really quick in the film room here. David, what stood out to you in the art style? It is... Much like Spider-Verse, it's it's unlike anything I had ever seen. So what was an element of the art style that stood out the most to you? To me, I think it was actually the background. Um, oftentimes, <laughs> the background of the art was very, like, it to me, I'm not an artist at all. Like, I can't even draw a stick figure. But, like, you would probably have, like, more of an idea. It almost felt like a stylistic choice to make the forefront, like, them, typically, very mm -hmm. nicely done and almost like it almost felt more 100% complete rendering right. whereas the background almost felt like 60 65 70% done like lines and stuff details were purposefully wiggly and purposefully right. blurry which i liked it was it was very unique it was in a way it was cool. very distinctive like it was very distinct in what they were trying to do but it had a certain character to it. it. It was trying to kind of go along with what I felt was the mayhem of the movie and in the title of it, mm -hmm. right? There's, it, there's some, there's like this mayhem element and the illustration echoed that. Absolutely. And, and I think that 
it's very comic booky to have the background a different render quality as the foreground. And um, I like how they added almost like a chalk texture to the background to give it yeah. that kind of 90s vibe as well with the foreground characters being much more rendered out, but still having that like paintbrush aesthetic. The thing that stuck out to me the most in cartoons and art, which I think this movie is more art than it is cartoon in the way that like Super Mario is all computer renderings. This feels like somebody put a, you know, brush to paper a little bit here, a little more. Yeah. Lighting is such the most important thing in every single second and every single frame of an animated movie lighting is king and the way that they accented lighting in this movie they didn't just use it as a lighting source you look at a lamp in an alley or a fire in a bin or uh, their phones every time they were on their phones the glow from their phones the light was like illustrated it was it was visualized there were like squiggles of light coming out of lamps coming off their phones and stuff and i think that was such a cool artistic choice Yes. For a movie that is so predominantly in the dark, everything is at night, everything is underground, everything is in a sewer. And I think the way that they visualized light and not just use it as a source, but the way they actually visualized it, I thought was something I'd never seen before and something that was really eye catching to me throughout. And I can't wait to watch it again. I, I appreciated that the same way I appreciate the use of the half tone dots in Spider-Verse. You know how every frame has that comic book overlay to it that has that little dot texture that uh, makes it feel like a comic book. I think adding a stylized texture to the lighting here was a very unique and awesome choice. Ladies and gentlemen, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Mutant Mayhem. We cannot wait for the next one. Honestly, like that's such an awesome takeaway from this movie. And I can't wait to see where we go next. Next week, we'll be back drafting origin movies. And that's Marvel. It's DC. It's every superhero movie. Maybe we expand it to other movies. We're not 100% sure yet, but <laughs> at least Marvel and DC origin movie. There's plenty to choose from. How many Spider-Man get chosen? That's going to be the big question. That is and we're very excited. Great question. <laughs> <laughs> we're excited to see what happens next. But until then, we'll see you next time. Kick.